Then got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going, better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. You're listening to the Tom Thicklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Harry, thank you so much for that introduction again. Welcome, everyone. Believe it or not, Sasha Turner is back. She was here in the, in the studio with us a few weeks ago, and uh, she's back for not more punishment, but for more <laughs> exaltation and, and us, for us, us to celebrate and, and share and also commune and not necessarily dictate, dictate but, but uh, describe uh, what life means in, a, in the macro sense in a micro sense this is black history month this is Pre- president's day so whether you take a historical perspective or a her or a, or a what i like to say her story perspective it's always good to kind of take a deep breath and decide and think about where you are reflect on your existence on this planet and what it means in terms of this time and space space continuum so sasha good morning it's really a pleasure pleasure to see you uh, I was kidding Sasha because I didn't want this to feel necessarily sexist, but I was admiring her hairstyle. And this is Black History Month, and it's for for better or for worse, our culture, our our pathos, our fashion has been has always been kind of newsworthy. If you think of the, the designer for Jack for Jackie O, if you think of of, of uh, just fashion in general in in America, you can kind of trace our our seamstress ability, our our clothing ability, our stylistic ability ability, and how it has been imitated. So. Sasha, you have a new hairstyle today, and I didn't want to talk about it because I thought it'd be sexist. But again, it is relevant in terms of how do we adorn ourselves, our our feeling about our queen and being king, kingly and queenly, and just our supreme being. And and hair also has a lot of symbolic uh, and also metaphysical and also kind of physical uh, issues in terms of help your hair is an expression of your health. So so take so take it away. <laughs> Good morning, Tom. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And- you know, um, so I'm excited this morning. And yes, the hair. I mean, I don't think the, the headpiece quite goes very well with the hairstyle. <laughs> it's sort of shadowing um, my Wakanda style, as I'm, I'm calling it. And I'm yes. excited. I still haven't seen the Black Panther, um, but I'm sort of, you know, getting ready to see it. I'm going to see it tonight. And so my hairstyle, mm. most times I do my hair, you know, um, it's how I'm feeling in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so right now, this is excitement uh, for the film. It's excitement for seeing uh, so much beauty in terms of black aesthetics, um, you know, being mm. on screen. And you sort of rightly say that, you know, the body is sort of this this canvas. Mm. And it's very critical to our history. And you think about um, black history, you think about women in history, particularly black women in history, the hair and the body, that's been, you know, quite significant. Um, remember a few months ago, uh, Miss Davina Bennett, Miss Universe Jamaica, mm-hmm. you know, she sported her Afro and that, you know, got, you know, the media talking. It got um, a lot of attention because people saw this as a political movement. They saw this mm. as building on something that's been in existence. So you think, for example, um, of the works of the 1960s and 1970s, you know, those proclamation and black and proud. Mm-hmm. Um, we are sort of living in a new moment where we are claiming blackness as beauty. And we're also, you know, trying to. Um, it's a little closer. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So we're also, you know, trying to create our own beauty standard. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a piece that I had written in Black Perspectives mm-hmm. um, talking about the Afro style and talking about, you know, what here and the body actually means um, to black activism. 
and thinking through the long and yeah, particularly the ugly history of blackness and beauty. So, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that we gloss over. It's actually something that we need to talk about. And in that piece that I wrote in Black Perspectives, what I did was to go through and give a long accounting of the very specific ways, both in terms of theory and everyday practice, in which um, enslavers and planters, you know, degraded and denigrated Africans and African descended people in terms of their identity and in terms of who they are. Mm. Right. Mm. And so you had, you know, planters who would spend a lot of time um, talking about black skin and black hair and, you know, associating black skin and black hair uh, with animalism, with it being ugly. And on a day to day basis, you had, you know, mistresses who would taunt. So you talk about body shaming. We talk about body shaming today. Body shaming dates back to the 16th century, the 17th century. You know, the entrenchment of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery because control of the body and attempting to denigrate the African body was so central to slavery. So this is part of the revolution. Indeed, indeed, (laughs) indeed, indeed. Are you ready for the revolution? Again, you listen to the Tom Tom Ficklin show and Sasha Turner. Uh, associate professor at Quinnipiac is here. And Sasha, you have a book that kind of reflects some of those themes that you've just mentioned, uh, con- contested bodies. And the, and I'm going to say contested, contested bodies. You say the, re- the other part. So pregnancy, childbearing, and slavery in Jamaica. And so pregnancy, childbearing, and slavery in Jamaica. I mean, that's, that's, right. that's just a... That's a mouthful and a body full, to say the least. And I really urge people to kind of kind of reference the book. We're going to include the link uh, we spoke last time about the book, um, and we're going to talk about it again maybe next time because it's a book that's that's uh, that that lives. It lives and breathes. It that the time frame is from. 18th century, so 1780 to 1834. But but there's a there's a connection to the present day that's re- that's really profound. Let's jump to Black History Month, uh, Afro Afro. Uh, I like to call it Afro Future Month or uh, Af- African Genesis Month, uh, whatever, or, or Black to the Future Month. There's a lot of ways <laughs> you can kind of come up with words and messaging. Um, but we were talking before we went on air about the, really, how, how does it become relevant, pertinent, stimulative, inspirational, rather than just a, a factoid? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think most of us um, by now are quite familiar with the founding of Black History Month. So a lot of us can, you know, recite Carter G. Woodson coming up with this idea of Black History Week. And then, you know, it's sort of um, building out from that um, into the 1920s uh, into uh, Black History Month. And so, you know, we sort of know that we can sort of repeat it and recite it. But I think in recent times, we have somewhat lost sight of um, why black history is important. Mm. Um, we have somewhat become so focused on 28 days, 29 days, and sort of debating, is it enough um, to focus on black history within that time period without thinking back through the larger point? Um, you know, what was the origin? What was the creation? What mm. purpose uh, did black history week in the first instance um, started? So why did it start? And, you know, what has it done um, from that time in 1926 to today? And so I think think, you know, part of what we have to do is to fall in love with history again. Oh, oh okay. And, and don't fall out of love. And, and, stay, and stay, 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 that's stay, right. Stay in love. That's right. Right. Stay in love with um, with history. Um, and but talk to the youth. How does how do they begin to em- embrace this, uh, this passion and this, if you will, uh, uh, p- pleasant addiction to, to to knowing that you can uh, that, that you're part of something of a moving you're part of a movement just by being on the planet, but you're part of something. And how do you impact and and 
and uh, create and, and submit kind of create things and be innovative in that regard. And how does Black History Month relate to to youth? Yeah. So, you know, a few weeks ago, um, Danny Glover was at Quinnipiac, mm-hmm. and that was actually one of the questions that came. Ah. Um, and in looking at the audience of people who came out to listen to Danny Glover speak, there were a lot of students, a lot of young people mm. from high school. So they were not just, you know, Quinnipiac yes. college educated, um, college age students, sorry, um, but also high school students. And that was one of the questions which came out, you know, so, you know, why is history relevant mm. um, to young people? You know, where is this space for us? And there were a number of things that I sort of took from Glover's point, and I'll sort of come back um, to a more specific point, pulling from my book in a, in a little while. Excellent. Um, but one of the things that I, I found interesting uh, from Glover is that he talked about the space that he would return to, the space of his home, mm. the space of his grandmother. Mm-hmm. And he also talked about um, remembering his great-grandparents mm. being enslaved. Mm-hmm. So his great-grandmother, his great-grandfather were freed um, by the Emancipation Proclamation. And for us to be living in a moment mm. where we still have people who can reference grandparents, who can reference members of their family being enslaved, that's a powerful moment. It's a moment that tells us that for all we're saying, we don't need Black History Month. In fact, we do, because we haven't yet begun to understand the full extent, the full experience of the Black experience here in the United States. But even beyond that, you think about um, departments, universities, you think about schools where Black history isn't even included in mm. the curriculum, right? Mm. Um, there mm. are institutions where there isn't, for example, uh, a post on African history. There isn't a post on African-American history. There isn't a full-time person teaching in some universities focusing on either African history or African-American history. So there is still so much work to be done as it pertains to black history. There is still so much work that we need to do both as academic um, in, in, you know, in my own profession, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also as community organizers and community activists because we are still trying to understand so much about the black experience and we're still living in a moment where individuals like Glover can still reference a grandparent, Mm -hmm. can still reference, you know, a family member who's had the experience of slavery. And so for me, you know, thinking through um, the ways in which the family uh, sort of remains a central aspect of who we are, we cannot move away uh, from, you know, trying to unpack, trying to understand what exactly happened to our forebearers. Work, work with me a little bit because you've talked about the what exactly happened in, in your book. And there's a, some discussion that the, 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 the therapeutic and psychological value of the, of the, of the Panther film is really, really profound in terms of uh, hel- helping to negate our, our tendency to, to ill health and to increase our mental health. Um, but you work with youth. You 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 see them in the street. You you see them in the classroom. Are they open in terms of their adolescent development? I know I'm kind of wandering here, but in terms of their psychological development, their identity development. How do you see again the 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 impact of this of this information, this knowledge, making them better, holistic, more more open, more democratic than rather than voting for the next Donald Trump? <laughs> so. I know so it's a little I'm, bit of curveball, but, but I don't. It's, it's not. Um, 
but it's a it's a thoughtful question. Um, so I'm not in the classroom this semester, which is a, a good thing. I think sometimes we need a break from the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but being in the classroom with students, I think, is a really powerful role um, because we, as professors, we as historians, have this incredible opportunity to educate. We have an incredible opportunity to also see to engage with students and gain some kind of insight into their thinking, into their background, and hopefully, you know, by the end of a semester or two, be able to reshape how they think about the world, mm-hmm. get them to at least, you know, ask new questions. So we might not necessarily always be able to get them to change their minds about something, but if they start asking a different set of question, then I think we are sort of on the path to where we need to go. And Young people, um, they have so much to offer, Mm. but I think in many respects, they become discarded. Um, They're seeing sometimes that it's not your turn yet. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. to go back um, to to Glover's point, one of the things he talked about is this tension historically, both in terms of his own activism and you look at, you know, various historical actors, there's always that tension between the elders and the younger generation. And sometimes as elders, and I'm including myself <laughs> <laughs> as an elder, we sometimes shun youthful exuberism and we sort of, you know, tell them it's not your turn just yet. But we have to be able to create a space for the young people. We have to be able to, um, you know, create a dialogue, that intergenerational connection and mm. connectivity between the elders and the young people to be able to bring the revolution further. So I think, you know, young people have um, an enormous amount of energy. And I think it's for us to be able to harness that energy, working with them to, you know, make productive use of that energy. As you were just chatting, the the phrase, the word, the entity, the movement. So the Black Lives Matter movement kind of connects with what you were just saying? It does. You know, um, the Black Lives Matter is a really good example of the the new um, energy of the youth, um, and we can sort of connect it back to the civil rights movement mm. of the 1960s and the 1970s. But it's taken on a very different direction, and rightly so, right? You know, um, so there is this tension between the strategies of the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil rights movement. And that tension that we're seeing between the movements is really, I think, a productive tension because what we're beginning to have is conversations about strategies that didn't work, Mm -hmm. strategies that Mm -hmm. worked for a previous generation, but also the needs of each generation also changes. And we have Mm. to sort of, you know, give space for young people to figure out, you know, who they are, to figure out, well, what kind of a history um, that I'm going to write. You know, each generation rewrites its own history, and we have to give young people a space to be able to write that history Mm. for Mm. themselves. Mm. Well well put, your... Uh, this is the Tom Ficklin Show. Welcome, everybody, for just joining us. And Sasha Turner is with us, associate professor at Quinnipiac. Can I mention that you're tenured? I mean, I already just said that, but 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 you are. And we'll, yes. we'll talk about that later. Uh, let's jump back to your book, because for today, again, it's Black History Month, President's Day. And we want to talk about the, the present, the past and the future, kind of like Sankofa time. How do you <laughs> yes. how do you embrace the past and the present and the, and, and the future at the same time? And your book kind of references, uh, Sasha, maybe here, share with us a few illustrations of young people's activism. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm going to sort of go back just okay. a little bit okay. Um, okay. before I get to the activism. And I wouldn't sort of use activism to talk about my subjects. All right. Um, that sort of more becomes a 
20th century terminology. All right, all right. Um, but I'll come, I'll return to that point in a little while. But one of the things that I talk about um, early on in the book is the centrality of children and youth to mm. abolitionism. Mm. And in the first part of the book, I sort of detail the visions that abolitionists had for freedom and the ways in which the colonies in Jamaica, so this is the British colonies that we're talking about, not American abolitionism, um, and the ways in which the British had this vision for a very slow, really very molasses-like pace movement mm. towards freedom. And their idea was that they would encourage enslaved women to bear more children, and then they would use missionaries and evangelicals to then train those children to ah. become you know, British subjects or subject citizens. And this would take place over a very long period of time. And so the idea that the abolitionists were tapping into is that children are innocent. Um, children are, you know, basically blank slates. And they have, we have the ability as adults, as reformers, to script the kind of characters on children that we desire. And so the abolitionists had a lot of, you know, issues with slavery. They had a lot of issues with what they saw were the vices of both, you know, African and These were the so-called progressives, pro progressives of the day. That's, that's right. These were the progressives of the day. Um, and I have a, a lot of problem sure. with these abolitionists. And in the book, I'm really very tough on them mm -hmm. um, because I'm offering a very different perspective on the abolitionists. I'm certainly not celebrating them as saints. Um, because they really put forward some very problematic ideas on black freedom, which I actually argue didn't necessarily forward black freedom. It mm -hmm. was really about expanding the British Empire and making sure that empire would work for mm. Britain. So mm. it wasn't centering, mm. you know, freedom for black people. It was really centering, um, you know, the interests of the metropolitan center, in this case, the British Metropolitan Center. And the children, they saw children as extremely vital to that, you know, new direction for, for the empire. These were the new customers. These were the new mm -hmm. customers, mm -hmm. uh, better customers too, because the problem that they had with adults is that, you know, the abolitionists would say, you know, the, the adults are so set in their ways. We can't reform an mm. adult, particularly an adult who had grown up in Africa. They would have been exposed to their own cosmologies. They would have been exposed to their own cultural and political ideals. So how do you transform that person and make them into, you know, British subject citizen? And so abolitionists had this very convoluted idea that if we were to raise the children from their infancy in the British cultural morals mm. and mm. values, mm. then this is how we get empire to work efficiently. So children were and young people were very central to the, the, the narrative of the abolitionists. They saw children as being essential mm. to transiting mm. from mm. slavery into freedom. Mm. And what this did, um, you know, is that it creates a new set of experiences for children. One of the things that I often think about when I talk of black history, so I'm sort of thinking here past, present yes. and future, yes. um, is that we don't see ourselves being represented as historical subjects. 
So if you go to schools, so recently I've been visiting um, some of the public schools here oh, in New Haven. So, so you have been hanging out with the young people. I knew it. I knew it. You know, the, that the record shows now she admits admits that there's been a, a token of, of, a, of okay. I have been. Uh, all right, I have good, been. Good, and good. and it's, it's, it's wonderful. But, you know, the, the wonder is that along a lot of these corridors, I see the images of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the wonderful drawings and colorings that the children do, you know, trying to, you know, color um, um, Martin Luther King Jr. And it's wonderful to see that at least there is a space where black history is is being discussed. But the challenge with that is that this is an adult, this is a grown man, this is sort of, you know, the great men history. And the, the, the limitation of the way in which we approach history and the way in which we talk about black history is that we don't often make it relatable. Mm. So there are young activists that we can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're young people whose names in some cases we don't even know. There is a recent um, sort of discussion among Twitter historians um, on Twitter talking about, you know, the her stories of black history, the kind of unsung stories, Mm. meaning the women's stories that we haven't been talking about. But what about the children's stories? Mm -hmm. And there Mm -hmm. are children um, that we can think about, you know, we can find a way to to, to integrate young people by pointing to the experiences of children within historical uh, moments. And so while I think it's wonderful that we talk about the great men and more recently we've been, you know, having a move towards talking about the great women, we also have to think about the children. We also have to think about the young people. And by, you know, allowing our young people to see, well, you don't have to wait until you're in your late 20s, Mm -hmm. 30s, until you become an adult. But, you know, you can start from where you are. You can start, you know, within your own community, within your own life Hmm. to begin to make a difference. So so the lunch, again, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin show and Sasha Turner is with us. So so the the lunch turner, I mean, the the lunch counter sit-ins is is another example? That's right. Yeah. Um, Lunch counter sit-ins. But it doesn't even have to be at that level where we can call it, you know, a thing, right? One of the things that we like to do as historians and um, scholars in society as a whole is we have to be able to name something. We have to be able Mm. to brand it, put Mm. a label on it. Um, And what I'm actually suggesting is to talk about subjects that whose names we don't even oh, know, okay. right? Okay. And this is one of the things that I get to in my book. I recently wrote a piece, The Nameless and the Forgotten. And again, the title of the book is? The title of the book is Contested Bodies, Pregnancy, Child Rearing, and Slavery in Jamaica. Um, and the essay that I wrote, The Nameless and the Forgotten, um, talks about this idea of historical subjects whose names are not even mm. included. Mm. You, so let's go back to one of the points that mm-hmm. you raised before in trying to identify children as activists. In my research, um, I sort of use a lot of court records and mm. there are children, for example, whose parents brought them to you know, lobby the courts for rights. So this is the 1820s in Jamaica where the changes that are taking place brought on by abolitionist activism is shifting the landscape, the legal landscape in which enslaved people are living and existing. And one of the changes which came across is that enslaved people could now petition the local justice of the peace and report some of the issues. So report um, experiences of being abused, of um, excessive physical punishment, not being given enough food or clothing ration. Mm -hmm. 
And what I found in the records were not just parents who were appealing for better treatment. They were also taking their children along with them. Oh. Right. So the, the children in one record, they were not just children, but also grandchildren who were there. The problem is that I can't then call out the names of these children. Yes. So there is no Sasha Turner that you can talk about. There is no Martin Luther King Jr. that you can then talk about and celebrate as an individual. And so I think one of the ways in which we really have to rethink Black History Month is to talk about a collective story, mm. a story that includes the masses, a story that includes people without always having the need to single out so a, a, young, a young person who might come, well, there's no school today, but tomorrow, or even the per, young person that might be home right now and in an elder's presence, what should he or she ask uh, the, the older person in, in the household? Well, you know, I think um, not necessarily a specific question, okay, but begin by just having a conversation. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is technology is a great device. But you go to a restaurant, for example, and there are four people seated at the table. It might be, you know, a husband and a wife and their two children. And each person has their yes. own <laughs> their own device. So we've lost the art almost of having a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, begin by saying, well, how was your day mm. today? You know, was there anything that stood out to you? Um, you know, so begin by just asking general questions. We've forgotten how to just talk to one another. Um, one of the things, again, um, that came out for me, and again, I was really um, in awe by, by Danny Glover's conversation, mm -hmm. was that he, after he had filmed uh, The Color Purple, he returned home to his yes. grandmother's house. Yes. And he had a conversation with her mm. about, you know, the filming. He had a conversation with mm. her about what it is that he was doing. So it doesn't always have to be, I think we we often think, too much in terms of big things. And again, it's the same way in which black history emphasizes the big leaders, you know, the big names. We are somewhat, you know, expecting those big things in life, right? So we have to sort of start at the ground up. In some cases, it's just by simply talking about your day, mm -hmm, um, you know, mm -hmm. talking about, you know, your your experiences, what you've gone through the day and, and what you've done. Mm. So, so let me kind of, elaborate on that if if we if i mean let's pretend i'm engaged you're you're my mother and i'm the son and, and i ask you how your day is and then i mentioned that in school i was bullied uh what 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 could transpire out of that well i think you know we in in sharing our experiences we want to allow for the person to speak mm -hmm. right um a lot of the times we're very quick to give advice we're very quick to use our language to articulate what someone else has experienced and what someone else has gone through. And I think it's very important to give the child, give whoever we're speaking with the space to talk about their experience in their language mm. and through how they've experienced it rather than us trying mm. to mm. put the mm. label on it, you know, sort of place it within our frame of reference because that's we so as a historian, that's partly what we try to do, or part of what I try to do, which is you know I'm sitting here in the 21st century trying to understand something that that yes. happened in the 18th century, and in many respects we just talked about activism and that it wouldn't be a word that I would use to describe the actions of 
you know, these young people in the 18th century, because it's a word from the 21st century that has a particular political connotation that wouldn't necessarily apply in the same way to the 18th century. Mm. And it's the same way when we're engaging with our young people, we have to use a similar kind of approach where we allow them almost to use their own words, to use their own language, to tell us about mm. what their, mm. their experiences mm. are. Mm. 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 I want to just kind of digest so you as as usual again you were with us uh, a few weeks ago and now you've kind of uh, laid some more uh, sound sound bites and thought bites and nuggets on me and I hopefully folks are appreciating it as well. Uh, Harry, do you have a question? I I like I like if he says <laughs> no, not for her because she has an answer for everything. <laughs> I, I, uh, let's let's go to the to the present a little bit. This is kind of off script. Okay. Um, and you've mentioned the word revolution, and that that is a word that has remained in our vernacular for you know centuries, for for hundreds. And so, but even that term kind of has has different meanings depending on the the time frame or the historical period. Mm-hmm. What does revolution mean mean to you? Because you have used it uh, a few times even this this morning, yeah. and I'm intrigued. Yeah. I mean, Stokely Carmichael, people would say Kwame Torre when he pick up the phone, ready for the revolution, and we know power to the people. Mm-hmm. So we've had these phrases. Uh, but the word revolution seems to have still been in various languages and has remained with us uh, in a variety from from the from the Greeks to the, mm-hmm. to the Egyptians to to uh, to Annie in Jamaica, you know, to mm-hmm. the Gilder Learman thing. So, what what does mm-hmm. revolution mean to you mm-hmm. these days? So, you know, um, revolution, uh, like you said, have have meant so many different things to different people at different points. And I think in in my experience as a historian, I think of revolution in almost the simple term as change in course. So, and the need, I hear you talking about the, I hear you, the implication is the the need for changing course. Yes, the the need for change in course. If you think about the experiences of the enslaved people, um, and in this case, if you think about the change away from slavery towards a free society, that was not a revolution. And I say it was not a revolution Mm. um, because what the abolitionists were trying to do was to put Band-Aid on something that required far more Mm. than that. Mm. And what I mean by that is the abolitionists had this idea that we are going to fix a Mm. system and we're going to fix the system. So the system was not broken, but it could be fixed. Right. The system, the, in their minds, the system is broken. So they no longer agreed with slavery. Okay. But the problem was not just slavery. The problem was also the British Empire. Ah. And so we have to understand, well, what is the real problem? And what is our intention? What are we trying to change? In many respects, when we 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 think about changing something, we're not always quite sure about what it is that we want to change. And we're also not quite sure about what change we actually want. And I think it's important, even if we don't know what the change is that we want, we have to have an intention that what we want is something that is more equal, mm-hmm. something um, that is truly humane. And what I mean by that is we often celebrate the abolitionists. And I told you that I'm very hard (laughs) on the abolitionists. When we think about the abolitionists, we often think of them as humanitarians. We often think of them as saints. But 
that's problematic because they set up their campaign, at least in the, the, the case of the British abolitionists that I study, they set up their campaign almost in a parallel way to planters, mm. which is that they started from the standpoint that I am better than you mm. are. Mm -hmm. I know more about what you should want than you know, right? Mm. And so it didn't start necessarily from a collective. It didn't necessarily start uh, from the standpoint of recognizing each voice equally, allowing each to have a seat at the table. So, so the missionary approach, the the missionary mindset kind of kind of prevailed. That's right. So the missionary sort of assuming that, you know, African cultural practices were uncivilized, assuming that, you know, Africans did not have religion. Right. And so mm -hmm. it's only by giving Christianity to African descended people um, that they will then have religion, not sort of recognizing that, you know, there is value that you are a person. So to come back to the issue of revolution, mm -hmm. we have to sort of, you know, stop thinking in these hierarchical terms. We have to start by, you know, thinking in terms of equality, recognizing each hmm. human as having a quality, you know, that they bring to the table. And it brings us back to the issue about young people as mm -hmm. well, right? So each person has something to bring to the table, right? So it's not just the elders. The elders do have, you know, wisdom of experience and wisdom um, of training, etc. But young people also have something to bring to the table. So, you know, if we're going to talk about a revolution, we have to ensure that there is a seat at the table um, for all those who are involved and all those whose lives will be impacted. T take us as we, we have maybe 10 minutes or so take us to the present. What is the, if this might, my question might sound kind of mundane or pedestrian, but take us to the present in terms of the, the need, what need for revolution do you see? Do you see today? So I won't answer in terms of a specific issue. Okay, I'll, I'll, get, you, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get you one of these days. I'll keep trying, but I appreciate the, the transparency. I won't answer in terms of a specific issue. Um, again, I, I think, you know, we, re, we need a real democratization of history. We need um, a real commitment to true equality. Mm. Part of what we've missed in the last 400 years or so is the assumption that with the birth of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, that this was the beginning of modernity, that this was mm -hmm. the beginning of equality. But we're wrong. We're very wrong because... In 2018, we're wrong. We're wrong. We're very wrong. Because if we look at the Enlightenment, the period of Enlightenment, Right. Um, the enlightenment is occurring side by side with slavery. Mm. How can we, on the one hand, be celebrating a revolution um, of equality and free thinking when a full half segment or more of the population is being denied that liberty and mm -hmm. equality and the freedom to pursue, you know, education and rational thinking. So we have to sort of go back to looking at the kinds of hypocrisies, if you may, or contradictions about what we celebrate as the benchmark to which we should aspire. And we've often aspired in many cases, unconsciously and consciously, towards certain Eurocentric ideas and in many respects, we aspire um, to or we think about the period of enlightenment and sort of European progress as the ideal to which we aspire. And I think 
that is sort of a very dangerous um, pathway mm. to pursue because, again, if we celebrate modernity as the pinnacle of human civilization, we're forgetting about slavery. And slavery, in many respects, was tightly wound up um, with the humanitarianism and sort of mm. racism was also tightly bound up with the abolitionists as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the abolitionists were not necessarily saying the exact same things as the the slaveholders, but they had a very different kind of racism mm. in their articulation of freedom. So there is mm. so much mm. that, you know, we need to unpack in terms of what we are celebrating as the benchmark that we should indeed be aspiring towards. Excellent. Let, let me try again. And today in 2018, what, <laughs> what kind of manifestations? Are, do, you, do, you, do you see a continuum of the just more evolved or or more specialized uh, racism or more specialized ways to to perpetuate inequality? Do you see the continuum still of pro progressing negatively towards some and to benefit others? So, you know, I think that, um, so I, the, the idea of progress um, is, I don't, Quite like that word. Okay, please this, <laughs> share with us. Share with us the word that you prefer. Um, so I don't like it because of the, the, the mythology surrounding it. The mythology, but also the assumptions about what progress should actually okay. look like. Okay. Um, again, we think in very linear terms mm -hmm. that we're sort of moving from point A to B, but in fact, you know, history is a powerful teacher that is not sort of moving, you know, in a very neat progression from point A to B, which is progress, but it's actually, you know, more cyclical It's going in. We can have a highs and lows. We can, we can so we, have, could, we could be in the dark ages again, so to speak, the new dark ages, perhaps. And indeed, perhaps we are, um, you know, um, and so we have to sort of stop thinking about, well, how far we've come. Mm -hmm. We do sort of need to have an understanding of where we are and where we've been. But I think far too often we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, you know, look at what we've done. Um, but I think the more critical question is, what else do we need to do? But uh, And also, how did we get it wrong mm. as well? Mm. Sometimes, and again, I keep going back to the abolitionists, mm -hmm. sometimes we look at past uh, victories as progress and celebrate them. And then when we take a closer look, it actually wasn't quite progress. Mm. And again, I talk about the abolitionists who here are proposing the end of slavery, but what they were proposing in its place was a system that, you know, was somewhat invisible. It was a system where if you could condition the minds of these children to become loyal British subjects, then they won't even have that distance mm. between the African mm. past mm -hmm. and, you know, their British subject present to realize that they were being retrained and retooled mm. for the purposes of the British Empire. Mm. So, you know, progress is such a double-edged sword and we really have to stop being so concerned with progress, but ask ourselves, truly, have we made progress and progress for whom? Mm. Mm. And that pertains to today very much so in your in your mind. That's again, right. And you're right. listening to the Tom Ficklin show and Shasta Turner's with us and we're gonna wind wind up in a in a second associate professor at Quinnipiac and, and the title of your book is It's Contested Bodies, Pregnancy, Child Rearing and Slavery in Jamaica. I really recommend the folks kind of pick it up. I was joking and kidding, but really being very serious uh, prior to coming on the air that there are how there are 15 chapters? How many chapters roughly are, are there? <laughs> there are 
There's seven chapters. S- seven chapters, seven but chapters. each chapter is almost a book in itself. It's a script in itself. It's a story. It's a play. So it's a book that you don't have to read uh, from from page one to to the end. Uh, you you can necessarily pick and choose. You'll be in, in you'll you'll be inspired to go from the from chapter one to seven. But each chapter has really a, such a profound point. So don't feel that you have to rush through it. Is 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 my main point. Uh, I want to kind of bring you, I want to still drill down a little bit more if I can on you in, in terms of 2018 and, and history and its impact and th- how you see today. And if, if you were around, if like 2025, would we still be having these, these, these uh, discussions of inequality and, and oppression and, and racism uh, in 2030 or, you know, where, where, did, where is, is there an endpoint or is it just always a, a continual fight and struggle and, 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 and search for freedom? That's a really good question. Um, you have a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the thing. <laughs> I'm sure I that you, you do. Historians are pessimistic by nature. Yes, yes, yes. But you're, you're an optimistic person before you were a historian. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Um, you know, I think there's still so much work to be done. So work to, work to be done. There's still so much. So, say that again. That, that's the key point, I think, for the, that we, we can we can not necessarily rest on our accolades or regardless of whether you view progress or or uh, us being on the precipice of of, of the civilization being going being a bomb kind of dropping on us but on the other band you got to 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 move forward and to keep, maintain kind of a sense of mental health and stability and and, and energy you, one does have to kind of think at least creatively if, if not if not energetically well creatively i think that's it um you know so we think about harnessing our creative energies mm-hmm. towards creating something that's new, um, creating something that changes course from where we are. Mm-hmm. But I think the unfortunate thing is that in our world today, we don't have much time or we haven't taken the mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. to foster our creativity. Mm-hmm. And I think because we have um, forgotten the creative dimensions of ourselves, we've forgotten an important part of our humanity. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, in terms of, you know, moving forward, sometimes we have to take a break. Mm. We have to take a break um, from, you know, everything else that's going on out there and explore, you know, different parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. and being creative, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's by writing, whether it's by enjoying um, walking outside, Mm -hmm. you unlock... or hairstyles, you know, you sort of unlock a different dimension to mm-hmm. who we are. So perhaps, you know, that's where the struggle comes to an end. Because if every day we sort of go in and we keep fighting, fighting, fighting the system, we're actually, you know, wearing down ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not allowing other parts of ourselves to flourish. So, you know, perhaps part of what we need to do is to think about, you know, how we can tap into our creative potential and start thinking about, you know, what kind of new things that we can actually create. Mm. History mm. is a great thing to create. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, history is in fact an, an act of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that's, that's one of the beauty about history. It's, it's a moment in which you can write yourself into being. Um, it's a moment in which you can, you know, create a new narrative you can create you know new ideas we started on the point um about black history month and sort of you know it's it's relevance and the kinds of um questions around uh black history month but i think one of the ways in which we've dropped the ball is we haven't tapped 
fully into the creative potential mm. of history. Mm. And the creative potential of history is being able to create ourselves, is being able to write ourselves into being and to write the kinds of stories um, they know that we are in fact mm. interested in. This is again for the young people, you yes, know. Yes. We are we sort of have to expand beyond the great men and the great women and start talking about the collective. So the people whose names will not be recorded in the archives. Um, and so we have to find a way to talk about those people where we can't at the drop of a hat talk mm, about them, mm, but they mm, are mm, nonetheless mm, important to mm, the story. Mm, mm. I'm, I'm tempted to say that, that I want to give you the last word, but you've already taken that, that's, <laughs> that, that. That's pretty, pretty profound. Again, uh, you listen to the Tom Ficklin show and Sasha has Sasha Turner has been our guest associate professor at Quinnipiac. And she's mentioned that she might even consider returning. So, I mean, I'm looking, looking forward to that, that, that happening as well. Uh, but I do want to say, what's in terms of as we conclude, uh, black philosophy, black religion, black beliefs in terms of uh, what is the sun going to shine in the morning or in the darkest part of the night? Any closing thoughts on that? Uh, don't you don't have to talk about sp- specifically your religious background? But I'm curious if you have any closing thoughts on what keeps people going from a black spirituality standpoint. Well, you just said it, black spirituality or spirituality. I said before, um, I talked before about, um, you know, what we celebrate as progress. One of the drawbacks, I think, of Western civilization is the attempt to sever the body from the spirit. And my book talks about this um, somewhat, um, which is that in order to make slavery work, for example, they constructed Africans as only body not spirit, right? And if you look at the kinds of resistance strategies that enslaved people um, use, so resistance as opposed to activism, Mm -hmm. resistance strategies strategies that enslaved people use, it was very much based in a spiritual practice. Mm. We can talk, for example, about the enslaved women um, and the kinds of rituals that they cultivated Mm. around Mm. childbirth. Mm. It wasn't this... um, very cold and sort of mechanical process of giving birth. It was very much centered around the spirit. It was very much around connecting the present life to the ancestors. Mm. And so when we talk about, you know, spirituality and religion, the danger of Western civilization is if you can't categorize it in a big label, Christianity, Judaism, you know, et cetera, then it, it, it's not spirituality. But in terms of understanding the African past, both, you know, in terms of the continent, as well as the experiences in Jamaica, we're study, there are various, um, you know, paths to mm. spiritual mm. practices mm. and the spirit was very much centered around a lot of those practices that enslaved people had adopted. And in my, in, in the case of my work, the kind of spiritual element um, in, you know, childbirth rituals. So the spirit I think is what kept our ancestors going. And I think if we sort of want to move forward, one of the things that we really have to rethink seriously is shifting away from certain Western ideas and return to the mm. roots and the African mm. Mm. is very much centered mm. around a harmony and a balance between the body, the mind, and the spirit. Mm. Mm. That, that's profound. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Sasha, for sharing. And let's, we'll conclude on that note. We'll pick it up next time when you come in. Thank and you. actually, you can pick it up as uh, soon as you stop listening to this because <laughs> li- living is, is kind of integration of your, your body, mind, and spirit. So wishing well to everyone that's uh, on the planet today. regardless of your ethnicity and Sasha thank you in particular Harry thanks as always and we'll talk to you next week
Avoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. Yeah. Cause this is my road. Let's camera action, I'm ready to go. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. Now you gon' face the dawn you waiting for I said from night to dawn I write my wrongs alarming Competition with warnings Ice galore Now I'm running toward that my life finish being a quitter But little, little by little They joking, telling some riddles Now I'm in my section Ain't willing to give up Know you getting knocked down But you gotta get up I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, hey Cause this is my road Let's camera action, I'm ready to go Give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Yeah, this is my road, let's camera action.